In the name of Jesus, uh, dear friends in Christ. Well, Thanksgiving is over, and I hope you had a most blessed and enjoyable Thanksgiving. We're probably still full of turkey. Maybe we've got a refrigerator full of leftovers. The Lions won big on Thanksgiving Day, right? Three in a row for the season. If we're a U of M fan, we don't talk about yesterday. If we're Michigan State, we're pretty happy. We're not going to go through the rest of the Big Ten. We have survived Black Friday, and we're just a couple days away from December, aren't we? And it's full steam ahead into the Christmas season. And even though the Christmas merchandise and some of the displays and the ads have been out in the store as early as August in some cases this year, I've seen, and even though we might have some radio stations have been playing Christmas music for about a month, we're almost at December. Now, I think December, to me, has to be about the craziest month of the year. Would you agree? I think it's absolutely crazy. We're so busy. I think if someone from another planet, if there were such things as people from another planet, would come into our world and come into our country and come into our culture during the month of December, they might conclude that we've absolutely lost our minds. Why is the next month of December? Why are the next four weeks leading up to Christmas so busy and so crazy? Well, we're getting ready, aren't we? We're preparing Maybe we've already been out there balancing ourselves precariously on our ladder, trying to hang those Christmas decorations and the Christmas lights and competing with that Griswold family somewhere in the neighborhood. Every neighborhood has that. Maybe we're starting to now hit the malls with more aggressiveness and intensity. Our homes will soon be filled with the smell of Christmas cookies, the sounds of our Christmas tunes playing, maybe getting kids ready for school programs, preparing for an office Christmas party, doing last-minute shopping, perhaps making some travel plans to go visit family and friends over Christmas break. It's going to be so busy. And it's Christmas time. Do you guys love Christmas? Yes, not quite as enthusiastic as the kids, but I love Christmas. It's a great time of the year. And it's a time, it's a season for me of so much faith and fun and family and friends and food. December is such a busy month of preparation. And today in the church, we celebrate another season of preparation. And it's Advent. And it's the season to get us ready to receive Christ again. And we'll hear a lot of talk in the weeks to come among Christians, and very appropriately so. Well, let's keep Christ in Christmas this year. Let's remember the reason for the season. Jesus is the reason for the season. Let's not just say happy holidays. Let's say Merry Christmas, and that's all fine and good. And while we prepare this Advent to celebrate again that first coming of the babe of Bethlehem, what the Christmas season is all about, We begin a new sermon series today at St. Michael Luther entitled, Why Jesus? Why Jesus? And today, specifically, we're going to look at why did Jesus come that very first Christmas over 2,000 years ago, that of which we're going to be celebrating so much in the next four weeks to come. Today, we're going to take a step back while we prepare for and we begin Advent. We're going to take a step back to reflect and to review and to remember why did Jesus come? The whole reason for the excitement of this season. Why did God do it? Why did he send his only son for you and me? And to see why Jesus came that first time, we need to go back to the beginning, the beginning of time, the book of Genesis, and our text today from Genesis chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. And now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. 
And he said to the woman, Did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Did God really say? The first four words that Satan speaks in the Bible. And Adam and Eve's response to those first four words of the devil, Did God really say, has so changed the course of human history. Because what Satan is doing here, when he says, did God really say? He's trying to create in the hearts and minds of Adam and Eve doubt about God's word, isn't he? Just as he does in our minds, when he says to us as we live out our lives, did God really say? Does the Bible really mean? Would a loving God really? And you can fill in the blank. Because when the devil could get Adam and Eve or get you or I to doubt God's word, in essence, he's getting us to doubt God's love, isn't it? Because his word is love. And we see verse 4. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. So the devil, after getting Adam and Eve to doubt God's word, to doubt his love, then gets them to deny God's word. You're not going to die. And then we see verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, going, knowing good and evil. So after getting Adam and Eve to doubt God's word and doubt God's love, and to deny God's word, the same pattern he uses on you and I today. He finally then slips in his own lie. He's got him greased up and ready to go and says, and your eyes will be opened. And yes, their eyes will be opened, but in ways they never intended. No pun intended, but Adam and Eve bit, and we know how the story goes. Their eyes were opened, and now they will sadly know the evil which God never wanted them to know. To know and experience the evil God never wanted to be a part of their lives. They will die a physical death, as you and I will someday too, as the sons and daughters of our original parents, Adam and Eve. Because when sin enters the world, everything changes. And as Paul writes in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. And everything changes because of the garden. There's now going to be pain in childbirth. Kids are going to make fun of you at school. You're going to have issues and struggles in the workplace. There's going to be fractures and disruptions in relationships. There's going to be war. Terrorists will strike. There'll be crime. There'll be hate. There'll be prejudice. There'll be illness. And there's going to be death. Death will be the universal experience, as God says to Adam and Eve, Genesis 3:19. For dust you are, and to dust you'll return. Because of sin, in the beginning, everything changes. Paradise is gone. Sin has tainted the world. Yet amidst the sin and the suffering and the chaos and the consequences and death, God in his grace, God in his love, promises to Adam and Eve and to you and me a Savior. Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In the midst of the mess of the garden, God promises a Savior. He's going to send Jesus. There's going to be a Christmas. And today we're going to unpack the two reasons why God did that in the beginning, why he sent Jesus that first time, why we celebrate Christmas. And the first of those two reasons is this. God did it out of his love and his grace and his mercy that flows from that love. It's not because we deserved it. He had told Adam and Eve earlier in Genesis 2 that if you eat of that tree, you will die. But God wanted there to be a Christmas. He wanted there to be a rescue. So even though Adam and Eve and you and I will die a physical death someday, he spares us from an eternal death in hell and separation from him by giving us an option. The option of a relationship with Jesus Christ. In his grace, he's promising 
a deliverer from the mess. And that's what the Old Testament is all about. And the second reason we're going to unpack today is that God made a promise. Three chapters and 15 verses into the Bible, he promised Adam and Eve and you and me a Savior, and he is going to bring it back. If we look in the Old Testament, there are over 300 specific messianic references and prophecies how God is going to bring about the promised Savior of the world. Don't worry, we're not going to go through all 300 of them today. (laughs) But each one of these 300 specific prophecies and references are fulfilled perfectly in that first coming and birth of Jesus. What the season that we're entering into is all about. There's going to be a Christmas. If you've had me in a Bible study somewhere along the way, you'll hear me say probably at some point, the Bible is the greatest love story ever told. It's the story of God's grace and love and promises to us. And we will see as we go through some of the survey highlights of the Old Testament how these two reasons that God sent his son, the two reasons for Christmas— how that plays out and makes a lot of different pieces of the Old Testament all fit together. Let's take a look at Noah. We know Noah, Genesis chapter 6 through 9. Bible, the Bible says that during the time of Noah, the world was so wicked. Things had gotten so bad, so debauched. People were so far removed from what God had called them to do and be in life that he was grieved that he even made mankind to begin with. He was moved to send the waters of the flood to destroy the world. But in his grace and in his mercy, he spares eight people. Noah, his wife, three sons, three daughters, and some pairs of animals. He's going to spare a remnant of the human race to still send that promised Christmas baby to rescue you and me. And as God foretold, the floodwaters did come. And it rained 40 days and 40 nights. Can you imagine 40 days of nonstop rain? Scripture says water covered the earth for 150 days. That's half a year. The Bible says that the water was so high, it was 20 feet higher than the tallest mountains in the world. And Noah and his family and those animals were in the ark for a little over a year. That was hardly a pleasure cruise. Talk about the ultimate cabin or boat fever. But God, in his mercy, spares a remnant. And those floodwaters do recede. And God is going to recreate the earth. And he's going to repopulate the earth through Noah's family. There's going to be a Christmas. And amidst the mess of the flood and the recreation, he makes another promise. He says, I will never again send such a flood to destroy the world in this way. And as a sign or a seal of that promise, that covenant, I'm going to give you the rainbow. Ten generations after the birth of Noah, we see Abraham. And one day the Lord calls Abraham to be the father of a great nation, the father of the Hebrew people. And there was nothing in his background, nothing in his makeup, nothing in his goodness, nothing on his resume that would qualify him for that. But God called him to faith and a life of service, like he calls you and me to faith and a life of service out of grace. Because he loves us that much. And God is going to call him. And through his family, through that nation he's going to build through that family, he's going to keep that ultimate promise to Adam and Eve in the garden to you and me to send that Christmas baby. And specifically in Genesis chapter 12, a great anchor chapter of the Bible, he tells Abraham, I'm going to fulfill that promise made to Adam and Eve in this threefold way to you. First of all, I'm going to give you land, a promised land. There will be a chosen nation that you're going to be the father of. 
Number two, I'm going to give you offspring. You're going to have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand of the seashore. And from this chosen nation and your offspring, you will be blessed to be a blessing, and the ultimate blessing will come in Jesus Christ, the Christmas baby in Bethlehem to save you and me. God's going to honor that promise to Abraham. He's going to honor that promise to you and me that he made to Adam and Eve in the garden in his way, in his time. Even though Abraham and Sarah, as you know the storyline probably, at times doubted him. They scoffed him. They came up with their own plans and their own schemes. They trusted in their own logic and reason as we so often do instead of trusting in the Lord. At one point in Genesis 18, they openly laugh at God when the Lord and two visitors come and visit a 99-year-old Abraham and an 89-year-old Sarah and say, about in a year, you guys are going to have your first kid together. They openly laugh. About a year later, the 100-year-old Abraham and the 90-year-old Sarah have their one and only child together. God keeps his promises in his way. There's going to be a Christmas. And if you skip to the end of the book of Genesis, and Joseph dies, and he was the great-grandson of Abraham, and the promise that God made to Abraham, the promise to Adam and Eve, seems so far away. They were hardly a great nation. They were nowhere close to the promised land. They were in a part of Egypt known as Goshen. And this mighty descendants, as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore, there are only 70 total Hebrews. But God is still going to fulfill his promise in his way. There's going to be a Christmas. Jesus is going to come. And then it reaches a time where the children of Israel will find themselves in slavery for 400 years. Four centuries of horrific suffering under the Pharaoh, the king, the ruler of Egypt. And even though they had forgotten about God many times, God never forgot about them. And one day he calls a shepherd named Moses out in the desert in Midian via a burning bush and tells him to go. Before the most powerful man in the world, commanding the most powerful army in the world, who many believed had the strongest legion of gods associated with their country, and go and demand that he let God's people go. A reluctant Moses did it, and God, working through him, delivered his people in the greatest single event of the Old Testament, the Exodus event. And he's going to bring him to a land. He's going to bring him to a promised land. And he's going to fulfill that Christmas promise by bringing a Savior through this chosen nation to save them, to save Adam and Eve, and to save you and me. And yet when they cross the waters of the Red Sea, and how many of us have seen the great Ten Commandments movie from the 60s, the Cecil B. DeMille? I mean, to me, that's always going to be my image of how the Red Sea was parted. I know it probably wasn't. But, you know, again, God doing the doing, but that dramatic crossing and when they finally step on land, truly free, east of the Red Sea, why does it take them 40 years to get to the promised land? Was it because Moses was a typical man like me and wouldn't ask for directions along the way? I don't know, perhaps. Actually, the real reason was is that they were stubborn. They trusted in themselves, me, myself, and I. They would grumble, they would gripe, they would complain, they would bellyache, they would say, Lord, what have you done for me lately? You know, just as we do in our lives. But after 40 years of wandering and wondering and bellyaching, God leads them into the land he promised. Why? Was it because they were so good? No. Was it because they deserved it? No. Because were they ever sorry or contrite enough? No. It's because God is so good. Because God promised there's going to be a Savior. There is going to be a Christmas. He's going to send Jesus. Why? One, because the Bible is the greatest love story ever told. It's the story of the grace and love of God. And that's how you explain the Old Testament as it relates to the New Testament. And two, he's going to keep that promise to send that Savior through that line of Abraham. 
Now, if we go through the rest of the Old Testament storyline in a general sense, you would find decade after decade, century after century, so often the children of Israel just not doing it God's way, not following him, worshiping other gods and putting their faith and trust in other things of their world instead of the one true God, just as we do today. They would flagrantly violate that covenant God makes with them at Sinai, where God said, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. And this is the first commandment, and you have no other gods but me. And it got so bad in Israel, the northern kingdom, after the split, after Solomon's death, that the last six kings of Israel, the ten tribes of the north, openly worshipped golden calves before the Sumerians came in. And you had some real winners in the, uh, the kingdom, the kings of Judah as well. You had kings such as Ahaz and Manasseh who openly sacrificed and killed their own children in fire to pagan gods. How far removed they got from the Lord. How far away they were from what God had called them to do and be. And yet God's going to send Jesus. There's going to be a Christmas. He is still going to follow through on his promise. And it wasn't because uh, they were so good. In spite of their failures and their foibles and their folly and their lack of faith and their feet of clay, all of which we exhibit in our life today, God is still going to send Jesus. He's going to send him. Now the Bible, which we're going through a quick survey highlight today to show how Jesus came that first Christmas, is the inspired and inerrant word of God. Amen? Amen. We stand on that as a bedrock here. We stand on that as a core value. It is the source and norm of our life. It's the Word of God. The LCMC, which we're part of, stands on the Word and the Word alone. The Bible's also the greatest love story ever told, as I like to describe it. And the Bible's also been called the inspired account of man's stupidity. And if you read through the Old Testament and the New Testament, you can see that. People going their own way and ignoring the Lord, and we do that in our lives today, don't we? But the neat thing in Scripture is God never stopped loving them. And praise be to God, he never stops loving us when we make the same mistakes. And he's never reneged on a commitment then or now. If you look at Jeremiah, one of the prophets of the Old Testament, he was known as the weeping prophet. And I can't think of too many prophets in the Old Testament who ever had a tougher assignment than Jeremiah in the times he lived in. And in his 52-chapter book in the Bible, he is always reminding the people of his day, and I think he's reminding you and I too, to be faithful to the Lord, to worship only him. Because in his day, Jeremiah was one of the few people that seemed to follow the Lord anymore. And at times, maybe you and I feel like we live in a world like that as today. But Jeremiah is telling his people then, he's telling us, Christmas is coming. From Jeremiah 33, beginning with verse 14, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the gracious promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. The Messiah is going to come from the line of David. He'll do what is just and right in the land. And in those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called the Lord our righteousness. Jeremiah was saying to them and to us today, get ready, prepare for Advent. Christmas is coming. It's going to happen, one, because God is full of love and grace. And today, just as back then, he loves us no matter what we do or we fail to do. And number two, praise be to God. He keeps his promises. Now today, we might feel like we live in a world similar to Jeremiah's. Uh, we live in a time where our society is no doubt becoming more secular. Our country is becoming more secular. We live in a time where God is openly mocked more and more. 
We live in a time where we often, like the people of the Old Testament, will start to put our faith and trust of the gods and things of this world instead of sometimes being rooted in the one true Lord. American society has been, I think, very accurately described over the last few years as being in truly the post-Christian era. What that means is the Christian church and the Bible and people who truly try to espouse biblical values are no longer in the cultural majority in our country, are they? If not, we are in a clear minority, and sometimes as we try to live out our biblical faith more and more, we feel we are countercultural to the society and the nation that we're in. At times, we may look at the world events. Just think what has transpired in our country and the world over the last couple weeks. And we may throw up our hands and wonder, God, where are you in all of this? He's there. He's sovereign. He is in control. It's a challenging time, though, to live out our faith. But Christmas is coming. We need to prepare. I'd like to show a brief video clip, which I think will depict what we're talking about today. Why did God send Jesus? Why did he do it? For us that first Christmas. I think the video depicts that from the time of Adam and Eve to the events of the very first nativity 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, the two reasons have always been the same. One, because God just loves us that much. Praise be to God. He loves us. And in that grace and mercy that flows from that love, he sent Jesus. He sent Jesus, even though the people of his day, the people of the Old Testament did not deserve it. They did not always love him back. They did not always believe him. They did not always follow him. Neither do we do today. But God, out of his love, sent Jesus in grace. And a definition of grace is the following. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. They, we didn't deserve Jesus. But God sent him out of grace. And God sent him out of mercy as well, flowing from that love. And a definition of mercy is the following. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. What we did deserve was life eternal in hell. But God, in his love and his grace and his mercy, sent us what we don't deserve and spared us from what we do deserve. And the second reason we celebrate Christmas and why God did it was because he keeps his promises. And that has to be reassuring to us today. In a world and time of broken promises and half-truths and deceptions and misleading infomercials and bogus emails and notions that, hey, it must be true, it's on the internet. We can count in the promises of God. He's never broken one, never has, never will. Why did Jesus come that first Christmas? He came so that we call him by his name. He came so that we could know him, that we could love him, that we could have a relationship with him. He came out of God's love and as promised. Jesus came to step into our world. He came to step into our lives. He is the incarnate one, the word made flesh. He came to save us from our sins. And that's what the name Jesus literally means. He saves us from our sins so we can have life eternal with him forever. Praise be to God. This Advent, we're going to focus on two comings, as we always do. Today, we've talked about the first Advent or first coming of Jesus, why God did it 2,000 years ago. In two weeks, Pastor Dave's going to focus on the second Advent or the second coming of Jesus, when he will come again. And the two reasons why we talked how Jesus came the first time are going to be the two reasons that he comes again for us someday. One, because God loves us that much, flowing out of his grace and mercy And number two, because Jesus promised he'd come again to take us home. And Jesus isn't going to break a promise. So this Advent season, amidst all the busyness, as we prepare for Christmas, let's focus on by the power of the Holy Spirit, why Jesus came that first time. 
And in doing so, perhaps it will transform our busy month of December this year, perhaps into something different. Maybe give us some peace, some perspective, some rest, and change the focus of what this season is all to be about. May our Lord continue to transform our hearts and minds by his awesome love, his grace, and his faithfulness to his promises. And let's always remember and never forget, one, God loves us no matter what. And number two, he keeps his promises. And that's why Jesus came the very first time. That's the reason for the season we're entering. In the name of him who came as promised the first time and will come as promised again. Amen.